Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, we're going to talk about a movie that's largely been forgotten, unfortunately. Um, uh, it's a movie that I really like. Um, and uh, and I think some of us can relate to. This is, uh, this is a movie called The King of Comedy. And it's the story of a struggling comic who strives for greatness through constantly badgering his idol. The struggling comic is played by Bobby De Niro, and the idol is played by Jerry Lewis. And often, Bobby's character goes too far. This is a film that comes at an interesting time in Marty's career, and actually is kind of sets up the next two movies we're going to talk about, in a sense, because the 80s were an interesting time. The studios were moving away from, from these big personal explorations by directors and and we're kind of starting to take control back from some of the directors. Um, one of the big reasons for this was there was a movie called Heaven's Gate by Michael Cimino that just went too far. Um, you know, and there were other films like Apocalypse Now, etc. And so the studios and producers felt that they had given the directors too much leeway and were starting to take some of the control back. And the problem is that Marty's a personal filmmaker. That's what he's always been. And so he had to learn to adjust and be more what he calls a professional. We'll talk more on that later. But also be more responsible in his filmmaking. Y you know, we have, we have an example of our own already covered um, for Marty's Apocalypse Now, which was New York, New York. Went way too long and went way over budget. Um, but this sort of trying to rein himself in so that he can get movies made that he wants to make is, is, is part of this movie and the next two that we'll talk about, which will be The Color of Money and The Last Temptation of Christ. Um, so this is a story that Marty didn't want to do. He was given the script for this back in the 70s, somewhere in the mid-70s, and felt that it was just a one-note joke. But the script had been given to Bobby, and much like with Raging Bull, Bobby kept pushing him, saying, I really want to make this movie, and I, I want you to direct this movie. And so by the 80s, especially after Raging Bull, Marty reads the script again, and all of a sudden it clicks. He gets it. See, Bobby's character, a man by the name of Rupert Pupkin, is similar to anyone trying to break into an industry they you know there's a, especially an industry where there's no easy easily defined ladder to climb like the film industry they're full of all kinds of passion and enthusiasm but we don't even know if they're any good because they haven't been tested yet and and they're looking for shortcuts because Doing the work is hard. And Marty saw a lot of himself from the early 70s represented in this character. Or or even in the 60s when he was a student at NYU. So, see, there's a, there's a great story that Marty tells where Elia Kazan, the great filmmaker who did films like uh, On the Waterfront, which was one of Marty's, which, which On the Waterfront was one of Marty's favorite films. Um, and other films like like East of Eden or A Streetcar Named Desire, etc. He, 
he was one of the great filmmakers. Well, Elliot Kazan came to speak at NYU, and Marty had gotten a chance for about two minutes to speak with him. And he later wrote him asking if he could be his assistant on his next film, The Arrangement. And Kazan said, no, I don't take on assistance. And Marty, Marty, looking back on it, says this is it's probably a good thing Kazan said no, because otherwise he would have just been asking him the whole time. Why are you doing that? Or, oh, oh, can I see this? You know, and that kind of thing, just bugging him constantly. And that's probably one of the reasons Kazan doesn't take on or didn't take on assistance either. But he also understood the character that became Jerry Lewis's character, a man by the name of Jerry Landorf. Landorf? Character by the name of Jerry Laneford. Because this Jerry Laneford character has to constantly deal with people wanting something from him. And I think this is one of the things that we, we don't understand if we're not famous Everybody who ever comes up to you wants something from you. And this is why a lot of famous people will brush other people aside, will will not engage with them, whatever, because, <laughs> because they're jaded, you know. Um, and Marty had reached a certain level of fame where he began to understand that. So now that Marty understands the movie and has a personal connection that he can make to its two central characters, he's ready to go into he, – he's ready to make the movie. The only, <coughs> the only problem was that the DGA, the Directors Guild, um, was threatening to strike. And they knew that if they got the production to a certain point, if they'd been filming key scenes for about four weeks – the DJ would let them continue if the strike happened. So Marty and his producers rush the movie into production because they want to be able to make this movie before the strike happens. And that created a lot of logistical issues because they're filming in New York. So there's cops asking them, you know, why are you guys parked here? What are you guys doing? Get out of here, you know. And the Teamsters, are, you know, are, are, are giving them problems, all kinds of issues. And the other problem was that Marty wasn't 100% healthy. So production slowed way, way down. He was, you know, not getting to the set until like 4 in the afternoon. And then they'd wrap at 7. Because um, he was just so ill that he couldn't, he couldn't do a whole day every day. So production moved very slow. You know, they had a ton of logistical issues to fight. And because Marty didn't have the prep time he normally had, there was a lot of trying to work it out on set with the actors. Because the one thing that he did do was he really simplified the style. He didn't move the camera hardly at all. It's all very static. In fact, he, he, he likens it to like a silent film, like an early 1900s silent film. That's how static the camera is often. And he lets the actors carry the scene, not the visual storytelling. And that was an intentional break from his, from, from his style because of the reaction to Raging Bull. We talked a at, at length about the cinematography at Raging Bull and, and his incredible visual storytelling in that. And what everyone was saying was, wow, it's incredible. You know, you could take any frame from that film and put it up on a wall in a museum. You know, it's that. It's that beautiful. It's that striking. It's that visceral. And so Marty intentionally went the opposite direction. He intentionally tried to be as simple as possible in, in the storytelling and let the actors carry on the story for him. 
and he never breaks that style. There's these sort of fantasy sequences with Bobby's character where he imagines, you know, his life being what it will be when he's famous. And Marty intentionally didn't create a difference between the fantasy scenes and the reality scenes, even though that would have been the typical thing to do. And he says, and I quote, because if things are going on in your mind and you're going over discussions and arguments, it's real. It's really happening. It's not a Ripley dissolve. Which I think is an interesting way of putting it. There's no, you know, filters, you know, there's no heavy diffusion filters over it. There's no, like, really abstract or really crazy colors. There's none of the things you would expect out of a fantasy sequence when you're thinking about what that will be like one day when you get there, you know. And so he stayed true to this style and... And it's actually quite brilliant because there's several scenes where you're not 100% sure if you're watching a fantasy sequence or if you're watching reality. And it kind of keeps you on your toes as the audience. Now, one of the things I mentioned before is that Marty didn't consider himself at that time to be a true professional. You know, he he would always liken himself to directors of the old Hollywood system like Michael Curtiz, Samuel Fuller, Ida Lupino, who could, like, knock out a film in a month. You know, they'd be there before everyone else showed up. They'd be troubleshooting, you know, figuring out how to, how to do something if it wasn't going to work. And Marty just didn't work that way. But he learned something pretty pretty keen from Jerry Lewis. So on the first scene... The first scene they shot was actually the first scene in the movie. And let me kind of set the stage for you. You're outside of a, of a television studio at the back entrance where Jerry Lewis's character is going to come out the door and try to get into his car. And there's this mob of people all looking for autographs, all trying to do, just trying to contact Jerry in some way. And Marty got too busy focusing on other aspects of the scene, shooting crowd stuff, shooting this, shooting that, shooting the other thing. And the scene took a couple days to shoot. And meanwhile, Jerry Lewis is there the whole time, but he hasn't even been called to set yet. He's just been sitting in his trailer all night long. And after a couple nights, Jerry, Jerry calls Marty to his trailer and says, Look, Marty, I'm a professional. I'll do whatever you want. I'll be here at any time. I'll hit my marks where you tell me to hit them. You know, I'll do whatever you want. You tell me you want me here, I'll be here. You know, you're paying for my time. But if there's a point where you get to where you don't think you're going to need me, let me know. You know, that way I can at least go home early. And at that point, Marty realized something. He realized that he'd been kind of selfish in the way he was doing things. It was all about him. It wasn't about being a professional and being there for everyone else. See, basically, Marty was holding all of his toys so that he could be very spur of the moment and just do whatever it is he wanted to do. So if all of a sudden there was a shot where he thought he might need Jerry, he, he had Jerry there. He could, he could pull him out of his trailer. But that's not being a, quote, professional, as Marty understands it. Um, to be a professional would be to know exactly what it is you're going to shoot that day and to get it done. And it you know roll right on through a movie very quickly, very efficiently, etc. And so that was that was something that he was trying to learn to do on this film. Now, unfortunately, for all that work, 
of trying to make a movie professionally, the film did not do well. Uh, it cost them $20 million to make and only brought in a tenth of that at the box office. It, it, and it's it's not been well considered by critics. Um, it's, it's, it's polarizing at best. I think it's a phenomenal film. I think you should watch it and see if you can kind of understand the characters and what's going on there. Because um, if you do, I don't, I don't think there's any way you can't not like this film. And I think, I think by watching the way Marty approaches this film, we can learn something as well. Um, now, Marty considers this film to be one of Bobby's best performances. The problem is that Bobby felt that it was not that good. Bobby felt that Marty had been overly complimentary of him on the set and didn't really do his job as a director in trying to get the best out of him. And so that put a strain on Marty and Bobby. And so they don't work together for eight years after this. They just kind of go their separate ways. In fact, they don't come back together again until Goodfellas. So the next two films we're going to be talking about don't have Bobby in them, which is kind of a break from where we've been up to this point. Um, and speaking of those next two films, we've got The Color of Money and The Last Temptation, Last Temptation of Christ, and then we'll get into Goodfellas, which I know is one that probably a lot of you are, have been looking forward to. Uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, you can follow our our social media pages, as I said, Hitchcock at uh, Hitchcock University at um, or on Facebook, Hitchcock under or Hitch underscore U as in University on Twitter. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, uh, send those into HitchcockUniversity at gmail dot com. Wherever it is you listen to the show, whether that's iTunes, podcast, Apple Podcast. Um, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, whatever it is. Uh, thanks again for listening. I've been Taylor Bickle. Um, come back in a couple weeks, and we'll talk about the color of money.